Our text for today comes from Exodus 1, 8 through 22, and 2, 23 through 25. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, and the, uh, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must throw, uh, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help, and their cry for help uh, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Ash. So uh, before we hop in today, just wanted to say that uh, next week we have a guest speaker coming to, to Grace Community Church. So uh, we're excited. It's also spring break, uh, which is also a good thing. And it's one of those things where this town, uh, if you've lived in Cedar Falls or in the Cedar Valley for any period of time, you realize that, that uh, this is a college town and it shuts down on spring break. And so here's, here's what I want to encourage you towards. Um, we have a guest speaker. Um, let's represent ourselves well, okay? <laughs> all right, that's all I'll say. All right, uh, good morning. It's great to be with you. Today we're kicking off a new series uh, on the book of Exodus. Surprise, surprise, as Ashley read from the book of Exodus, that we're calling Exodus, dash or colon, the work of salvation, the work of salvation. Uh, I'm, ex I'm especially excited about this sermon series because uh, we are headed up to Easter, and because we've been reading the Bible together this year, uh, in what we're calling the year of biblical literacy. Now, in the year of biblical literacy, what we are doing is we are reading the Bible together. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and if you've been a part of that reading plan, you've read Exodus up to this point. So I'm hoping that it, it, this uh, book, because you're familiar with it, because you just read it uh, a little bit ago, you'll be very familiar with it. Now, if you haven't been a part of our uh, reading plan this year, I have good news for you. You can start tomorrow. It's a, it's a really great opportunity uh, to pick up the scriptures. Uh, we have reading plans back at the coffee bar today if you want to go back and pick those up. Or you can download the Read Scripture app. Um, I think we have, we don't, you can go online and check out the Read Scripture app. Um, 
today or tomorrow is a great time if you've, if you've lagged off a little bit to restart. And if you haven't been reading along with us, tomorrow is a great time to start because there's never a bad time uh, to begin to read the scriptures. There's no need for feelings of guilt because reading the Bible is something that we do not legalistically or out of some sense of religious compunction. Um, you can go look that word up. Uh, but rather, we read the Bible to connect with truth and to commune with God. Uh, and so there's never a bad time to start doing that. There's never a bad time to start doing that. So uh, I believe tomorrow we're in the book of Joshua, which is the first book after the first five books of the Bible, after the Pentateuch. Uh, we're in Joshua 22 through 24 and Psalm 69. So uh, it's a great time to start. You can pick up there uh, tomorrow with us. And like I said, if you want to grab a physical copy, if you're that type of person, head back to the coffee bar and grab one of those, or uh, you can download the app. I download the app, but I actually have found that it's easier to do the physical copy because sometimes I get uh, twisted around this as, as well. So, all right? All right. Now, uh, if you've been reading along with us in the book of Exodus, you'll know that Exodus is the second book of the Bible after Genesis, and it is the count of the people of Israel's, surprise, surprise, Exodus. It's a, they're really good at titling bo uh, books of the Bible. Their Exodus from Egypt, or f specifically from slavery in Egypt. And the reason I think it's important that uh, over the next four weeks, we zoom in on this book a little bit is because of its importance in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. This story, the story of the Exodus, is the definitive story in all of the Old Testament. God even emphasizes that fact in the Bible. He says, essentially, this is the story that you tell and retell. This is the story that gives your life structure and meaning. And so he instructs the people of Israel to tell this story over and over and over again. He even institutes a religious meal, the meal we refer to as the Passover, where they all get together and they eat lamb and they tell the story to one another and they tell the story to their children as a means of living into this story. And I think the reason he does this, the reason he does this is because we all have defining stories, don't we? We all have defining stories. In your family, there's probably defining stories, something about your father or your grandfather, your mother or your, gran or your grandmother. In my family, there's this defining story about my grandfather, and uh, Nora even heard it from my mom, I think. She came up, she mentioned it in the back of the van this week. Uh, but there, it's a story about a time that my, my grandfather went fishing, and he caught a fish hook in his cheek. Uh, which is not a great story to tell, right? And it's not one that you would think we would, we would be telling often. But the reason we tell it is because my grandfather fancied himself a fisherman, and he also had six girls, no boys, and he took them fishing all of the time. And though he loved to fish, he was horrible at fishing. <laughs> he never really caught anything. Uh, and the story of the fish hook in his cheek is a, is a story that tells us something about the futility of my grandpa's desire to be a fisherman with six girls. Uh, it's, this, it's this story that frames or tells you something about uh, the reality of your family. And now that's a lighthearted example, but we all have stories like this, don't we? We all have stories that our family tells uh, as a way of understanding who we are of who we are. And the story of the Exodus is this story 
in the scriptures. It is a story that the Israelites told and retold as a way of communicating the reality of who they were. This is the story through which God first, in the most definitive way in the Old Testament, reveals his character both to his people and to the world. And so the story of Exodus is vitally important if we're going to understand God or if we're going to understand his character, if we're going to understand what it's all about. So we're going so to drill down a little bit in the book of Exodus over the coming weeks. Now, uh, you'll find, if you, as you read through the Bible this year, there's always these, um, these passages of Scripture where we're being reminded to think back to the Exodus. Uh, uh, over a hundred times in just the Old Testament, you hear some passage or some encouragement from the, from the scriptures telling the people to remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus. And I just have a couple of examples up here. Uh, just a few books past uh, Exodus in Deuteronomy 5, we, we read this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is defining himself by the work that he does here in the book of Exodus. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 6, in the historical books, it says... Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Uh, Samuel is redefining for the people who they are in light of the Exodus. In Psalm 81, verse 10, it says this, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouths wide and I will fill it, right? It's the story of God's provision for the people as he brings them out of the land of Exodus. And in the prophet Amos, even, uh, we, Amos 2, verse 10, I believe we have that one. It says, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorites. But it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It actually goes into the New Testament as well. In Matthew 2, verses, uh, verse 15, uh, we, we read this. Uh, he remained, speaking of Jesus and, uh, and his family, it says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This is Jesus and his family. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. This is the story in the Old Testament. The story of the Exodus is so important that I would argue it's vitally important to understand the story of the Exodus in order to understand what Jesus was doing when he came to earth, how he framed his thinking and thought. In fact, as we talk about Jesus, about his life and his death and his resurrection and all that that accomplished, um, we, if, if we want to understand that, we have to understand the Exodus because words like Jesus saves us, Jesus delivers us from the power of death, or Jesus saves us from slavery to sin are all words that were first defined and used in the story of the Exodus. And so specifically, because for us, Easter is right around the corner, it's incredibly important that as we explore the story of the Exodus, we look closely at it to see what, what we can glean from it, what we can learn more about the work of Christ in each of our lives. Now, that's why we're calling this, this series The Work of Salvation, because the work that, that God brings about on behalf of the Israelites and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt— is the first instance we have in all of the scriptures of God working salvation for his people. That's the language that the scriptures use. And for us to then understand what Jesus is doing in working salvation for us, we have to first understand how God intended it, what he meant by it when he said it back in the Exodus. So 
today, we're basically going to be asking one question of this text. One question, and there are a couple answers to the question, but we'll be asking one question of this passage uh, uh, in Exodus. In Exodus, what the question is, what is Israel being saved from? What is Israel, in this passage, being saved from? They're obviously in need of salvation, but what is it that they're being saved from? Now, specifically in the first chapter of Exodus, we see a problem arise, don't we? Now, a little background for you is helpful here. If you've read the book of Genesis, you know the story. But in the story of Genesis, God calls Abraham to be the father of a great nation. He, and he, he reaches down his hand uh, of all the peoples in the world, and he selects Abraham to be the head, the, the start of this family through which he will bless the whole world and, and, uh, and through which he will communicate to the world what type of God he is. And so God reaches his hand out to Abraham, and Abraham begins this process of growing his family to be this family that communicates to the world what God is like. And, and he begins that work, and, it's at, and there, are, there are fits and starts in the process, but functionally, Abraham is doing this, and he passes down this blessing and this relationship, this special relationship that his family has with God to his son and to his son and to his son, until finally, at the end of the book of Genesis, we have a story of Joseph, the great, 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 yeah, grandson of Abraham, as he finds himself in leadership in Egypt through a series of events. His, brother th- his brothers threw him in a hole. We don't have time to get into it today. Um, but through a series of events, Joseph finds himself in Egypt and <coughs> in a leadership position in Egypt, actually. And because he's in this leadership position in Egypt, he invites his whole family during a time of famine to Egypt so that they can survive. It's a very practical thing that Joseph does. And so the, the people of Israel, this people that God has selected out to bless the whole world, find themselves in Egypt. But, in the story, but at the beginning of the story of Exodus, we run into a problem, don't we? At the beginning of verse 8, it says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And what started out as a way for God's people to simply survive, to avoid difficult times, to avoid a famine in that part of the world, now becomes an opportunity for these people to be enslaved by a king who doesn't care about Joseph or anything that he meant. But, uh, But notice something, and I think this is really important when we read this text, that though the people of God find themselves in a difficult situation, God's hand has not been removed from them. Notice this, and here's how. God has not withdrawn himself or distanced himself from this people. Yes, they are, uh, they are in a difficult situation. They are enslaved in Egypt, and things are rough, but God has not abandoned them in any way, shape, or form. Israel, and, and I think this passage makes this very clear, Israel is still in a state of being blessed by God. And you might ask, well, how is that possible? They're enslaved. Well, they're having a lot of kids, Like a lot of kids, right? And in the scriptures, uh, having a child is the definitive blessing. It is the definitive blessing of God. We read it in our text for today. These Hebrew women were apparently very vigorous. uh, And they were able to have a lot of kids. And so in some sense, God is 
God, they are living out the, the blessing of God to be fruitful and to multiply. Though their situation looks uh, stark and difficult, yet there is, this, uh, there is this concrete blessing that is occurring upon the people. That they, uh, and, and though they have a difficult, they're in the midst of a difficult situation, they are blessed. And there's a theological truth here that I think uh, that we can draw from. That though your circumstances might be difficult, that though you might be finding yourself in the midst of a difficult time, that does not mean that God is not blessing you, that he has removed his hand from you. That does not mean that God has abandoned you or that he does not hear you. You see, the, the story of the scriptures is a God who allows things to happen to us. We live in a broken world where sometimes broken people do things, right? We live in a world where decisions are made that we don't, uh, aren't necessarily in control of, and those things affect us. And yet, and yet, that does not mean that God has removed his hand from us or that, uh, or that we are not experiencing his blessing in some way, shape, and form. God has not removed himself from you if you find yourself in a difficult situation today. He has not removed his blessing. Though you feel like things might be dark, and though you might even be like the people of Israel in the story, praying, even groaning for deliverance from that difficult situation, which is an appropriate way to behave, God's character is fundamentally one of covenant faithfulness. God does not remove himself or abandon his people, and he will not abandon you. If you're in a dark time today, he has not abandoned you. And if you're, in a, and if you're not in a dark time today, just get ready. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. But the truth of the matter is, and there is deep theological depth to this, that God will, does not easily remove his hand from us. God does not easily remove his hand from his people. And he is 100% committed to you. And he might even be blessing you in ways in the midst of this difficult situation that you're not even cognizant of. And when you look back on it, you'll, be, you, you can see, you'll, you'll see it probably. But in, the, in your current circumstances, what's required of us is not that we, uh, that, that we forget the blessing of God or that we forget the presence of God, but that we be made aware of the fact that despite our difficult situation, despite it feels, it, it, though it might feel that we are in slavery to something, Despite the fact that we feel that something might be dark and hanging over our heads, God is still with us. God is still with you. And so, uh, God makes clear his character here in this passage. He makes clear his character in this passage. And though these people are in slavery, they are blessed. They are still blessed, and God is still blessing them. But yet, they are still in slavery, right? They are still in slavery, and in the midst of their slavery, they are, this, the text tells us, crying out to God, that they are literally groaning inwardly, that there is this deep, um, there is this deep sense of pain and dissatisfaction, and, it's, and, and they're in, their, in their pain and their dissatisfaction, they're calling out to God in the midst of their slavery. And at the end of our teaching text for the day, it says that God hears them that he hears them, and he sets about this process of delivering them from their bondage. And so the question this morning, I asked it earlier, is what are the people of Israel delivered from? What are they being saved from? 
You know, on the surface, this question could be pretty simple, right? They're slaves. God's making them not slaves anymore. But the truth of the matter is, I, I think there is a depth that we need to grasp here about what it is that these people were being saved from. Because though, uh, though it, on the surface, it might just look like slavery, right? God is just letting these people out of slavery. There is a theological depth to what God is attempting to communicate to us about what is actually being, about what the people are being delivered from that I think can deepen our understanding of what it means to be rescued ourselves. And so this morning, we're just going to look at the three things that I think this passage of Scripture tell us that God saves the people from, all right? So the first thing that Israel is saved from is uh, they are saved from Pharaoh as a paradigm of power, idolatry, and rebellion. We'll leave that one up on the screen for a minute. Pharaoh wields oppressive power in this story, doesn't he? He subjugates people. And he builds and builds and builds a kingdom that is laid on a foundation of idolatry and oppression. This is what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh was literally considered a god at this time. And this is important to realize. Pharaoh had set himself up as a kind of god, uh, which is about as far as you can move from the, uh, the acknowledgement and the worship of the one true god. Think of it this way. In the scriptures, uh, we're told to not worship an idol, right? And Pharaoh, not worship idols generally, and Pharaoh has not just turned from the worship of God to worship an idol, he has literally made himself an idol, right? Uh, and so in this way, Pharaoh represents nearly everything in the world that stands opposed to the goodness and love of God. Pharaoh, Pharaoh practically in this story is, is the one that the people need to be delivered from, but symbolically Pharaoh represents everything in the world that people need to be delivered from. Uh, the book of Exodus goes to great lengths to show us the, that there is a battle in this story occurring between Pharaoh and between God. So these are, the, these are the, the two pit against one another in the story. God is pit against Pharaoh. Now, we're tempted to think that Moses and Pharaoh are the one do, ones doing battle. But it's clear as we look deeply at the text that it is God who is the deliverer. Moses is the mouthpiece, but God is the deliverer. God, uh, the God of Israel, is the one who is doing battle against Pharaoh. And doing battle not just against Pharaoh as a person, but against the paradigms, the structures of power, an idolatry and rebellion that Pharaoh represents. You'll notice in this story that as God delivers the people from Pharaoh, he strips all of Pharaoh's power. He strips everything that, uh, he strips all the power that Pharaoh has. He, he destroys the systems and structures that keep the people of Israel oppressed. You know, there's a real, a scholar say that the, t the ten plagues that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, the ten plagues that there are actually God's statements against different gods that Egypt had. So in every plague, God is challenging an Egyptian god, in a sense, es establishing his authority over that god. And so God, via his confrontation with Pharaoh, is... Uh, is stripping Pharaoh of his both practical and symbolic power as a, uh, as a ruler set up against the authority of God. And he does this, right? He does this. God literally lays Pharaoh low. 
the, the passage, the, the scriptures tell us that, um, that when the people of Israel leave Egypt, they leave with all their money. They leave with all of Egypt's money, right? They, they, at the, in the crossing of the Red Sea, the military power of Egypt is, is flattened, right? Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's religious, his, uh, so his idolatry is smashed as, as God defeats the gods of Egypt. Economically, he is laid waste, and militarily, he is defeated in every way, shape, and form. Uh, God defeats Pharaoh as a sign of, of his authority in the world. And it's no surprise, it's no shock that when the New Testament writers begin talking about the victory that Jesus wins for us on the cross, that they talk about that, the way in which Jesus accomplishes that in terms like this. In, in, in Colossians 2 verse 15, it says this. It says, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's that Exodus language that's used to define what it is that Jesus is doing. And it is for this reason that early Christians acted in that way as well. They no longer participated in unjust systems and structures of power and authority. They opposed the idolatry of the Roman Empire in the first century. They, sh they, they shared their physical resources and welcomed the poor and the sick into their homes as a way of saying that these structures that are set up by unjust systems have now been brought low in the name of Jesus. This is why early Christians uh, ministered to and loved people in prison. Right? You ever wonder why that happens? Because the systems of power and authority and justice that are set up in the world have been shattered by Christ. He has, he has torn down those systems in such a way as that Christians now live in a way that points to the fact that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities of this world. It's interesting stuff. And just like God saved Israel from the power of Pharaoh... Christ has liberated us from the power of, world, of the world that seeks to control and enslave us. This is what Christ has done. The language that the New Testament uses to, to hearken back to, the, to this idea in the Exodus is that Christ has defeated the principalities and powers. The principalities and powers. That those uh, even political earthly authorities that would once hold sway over us, that would once cause uh, us to lean into a culture of, of, of idolatry, that would, would once oppress people, have now been shattered in the name of Jesus. They've been shattered. And this has real-world implications for the way we live, doesn't it? It has real-world implications for the way we live. So that's the first thing that, that, people, that the people were saved from. They were saved from the power of idolatry and rebellion. The second thing we see that, that Israel is saved from in this story is slavery. Slavery. Beginning in verse 12, it says this, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh. Um, they gave them hard labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Worked them ruthlessly. Slavery in this story is all about control, isn't it? That's really what slavery is about. You are a slave to the extent that you are forced to do something that you might not naturally choose to do or something you don't want to do. Specifically, to be a slave is to lose your will, isn't it? To lose your volition, to lose your capacity for free choice. That's what it means to be a slave. 
if you cannot choose something freely, in some sense, if you're not free to choose something or to choose something else, you are a slave. And Israel lost their autonomy. They lost their ability to decide or determine for themselves what they would do. We know that one of the most dehumanizing things that any people or person can do to another person is to take away their autonomy, right? To take away their individuality, to take away their volition, to take away their ability to make a free choice. This is why we get, this is where we get the phrase when someone has truly lost the, the sense of who they are. What do we say? We say they've bro- their will has been broken or someone has broken their will, right? It's the, it's the sense that somebody has been totally laid out. And slavery for the people of Israel is all about the loss of volition or the loss of personal will, the loss of the ability to make free choice. And so when God frees them from their literal slavery in order, uh, uh, in order uh, when he frees them from that, what he actually frees them up to do is to make a free choice to love and worship God. This is what he frees them to. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the, Bi- the authors of the Bible talk about slavery, not, speci- not specifically as slavery to any human person, um, but they talk about the slavery of our will, the slavery of our volition. And the slavery that the, the New Testament talks most often about is the slavery to sin, the slavery of our will to sin. Uh, and New Testament writers love to point to this fact that human beings, by our very nature, are enslaved to sin. We, can't, we, we don't choose well for ourselves. Our volition is kind of uh, taken away from us. And we know this, right? We know the ways in which sin uh, takes our volition, takes our will, takes our ability to make free choice. Sin has this enslaving component to it. Uh, and, and it enslaves us in ways that we're not, we're aware of, but just kind of takes over, doesn't it? And it eradicates our will. So you'll be driving home one day, right? And you'll see the golden arches. And the next thing you know, you have four shamrock shakes in your lap. Uh, something, my will has been violated, right? The shamrock shake just calls out to me and I can't do anything about it. That's probably the worst sin I'll talk about today. Uh, no, but it gets worse, right? It gets worse. You're feeling lonely, and so you grab your computer, and the next thing you know, right? You're looking at something you don't want to look at. I hear this all the time. I can't control my anger, right? It just, anger just, it just bubbles out of me. Something happens, somebody says something, and there it is. Our, sin violates our will, doesn't it? I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I can't help it. I just, I just judge everybody, right? I just see that mom and she's doing that thing that I think ho- only ho- a horrible mom would do, right? And we just judge and judge and judge. We can't turn it off. This sin just takes control of us. It has power over our volition. We are in some real and true sense slaves to sin. And this is what the New Testament writers say. They say that our will, our volition, our free choice has been taken captive by sin. But, but, the work of Jesus, they say, the work of Jesus is to free us from our enslavement to sin. To free our volition to serve and love him freely. To make a free choice to serve and love God. This is what it says in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans. We have it up there. 
I don't think so. Anyways, uh, it says this. What then shall we, uh, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you, were, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that, was now, uh, claim, that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Interesting, right? Christ frees us, frees our volition, frees our will from this enslavement to sin and allows us to make a free choice to claim our allegiance in the, in the words of verse 17, to follow and love God. This is what the work of God, this is what the work of Jesus is all about. He, you know, Jesus does not control us. He does, he does not enslave us. He gave us a will and a volition in order that we would make a free choice to love and serve him. Without Jesus, we don't have the ability to make free choice. This is what the scriptures teach us. That without Jesus, we are enslaved to sin. And that thing in our lives that just kind of always goes in the wrong direction, we are in some sense powerless to control it. But because of the work of Christ, we are freed, literally, from, the sl from slavery to sin. And our wills or our volitions are freed up to serve and love him and to serve and love others. And just like God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, God in Christ has freed us from the tyranny, from the slavery of sin that, we, uh, that entangles our will, that we might serve and love God more. Now, just like Israel... Uh, has been slaved from sin, the, the, thir the third thing that they are slaved from, they are freed from, excuse me, in this story is death, is death. If the band could come up, that'd be awesome. This is what it says uh, in our teaching text for today, beginning in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were uh, Shipra, I don't know, and <laughs> Ashley said it way better than me, and Pura, uh, when you are helped when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth <laughs> on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did, not, um, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you, uh, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh, in this story, is a literal death dealer, right? So much so that death, which in the scriptures is portrayed as the exact opposite of God, uh, Pharaoh uses death as a tool to accomplish his purposes. Death or murder is something that we learn in the passages of scripture, specifically in the book of Genesis, that is, the, that is literally the opposite of the life that is made available to us in the person, uh, in the person of Jesus. But specifically, God as creator is a creator of life. And so in this way, there's this juxtaposition 
There's this comparison in the story between God, the one who brings life, and Pharaoh, the one who deals death. You know, uh, in this story, Pharaoh uses death as a tool to accomplish his purposes, doesn't he? He's, he wants to accomplish something, and he, and he uses death. And practically, uh, this is what he does. He kills people. He uses death or the, or the threat of death as a way of getting and doing what he wants. And there's this really interesting way that the scripture begins, continues to talk about Egypt as, as it goes. There's this echo through the rest of scripture. When the Israelites talked about what it was to live in Egypt, they talked about living under the shadow of death. It was the shadow cast by this regime that wielded death as a means of accomplishing what he wanted. And they talked about it being, they talked about living in that land as living in the shadow of death, as though death kind of overshadowed them. It, it controlled them. It was an ever-present reality in their lives. And so when God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt, what he delivers them from is the shadow of death, right? He delivers them from this, this, this place of death, the, the rule or reign of death that re resides over their lives. And when Jesus wants to define uh, who he is and what he's come to represent in the book of Matthew 4, he's in the synagogue and he's talking to the people in the synagogue and it's his turn to read the scriptures. So he gets up and he finds the scroll of Isaiah and he rolls it to the place where he needs to roll it to. And, and he says, uh, and, he makes the, and he makes the proclamation in a sense. The, uh, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is how Jesus defines what he came to do. This is Exodus language that Jesus is using here for what his role or his responsibility is. Only the death that Jesus delivers us from is even greater than the death that God delivered the Egyptians from. God delivers Israel from the literal power of death that Pharaoh had over their lives, right? The Pharaoh literally had the power of life and death in his hand. He could take anybody's life that he wanted to take, and he did that regularly. But Jesus comes, and he de defeats the literal power of death, uh, li the literal power that death holds over all of us. This is what the scriptures tell us Jesus did. And for those who find their lives hidden in Christ— that that same death, the death that held power over all of us, has been defeated in his resurrection. Fascinating, isn't it? When Christ saves his people, he saves them from, the scriptures say, the sting of death. And he proves this on Easter morning when he, when he resurrects from the dead, when God resurrects Christ from the dead. As a means of saying that the death that holds sway over all people throughout all time no longer has sway, no longer has authority. It has been in some real and true sense finally defeated. And its sting, right, has been taken away. Now, this is what is called the great hope of the Christian life. That Christ, in his work on the cross and in the resurrection, has finally and completely defeated death. That there is no more death and that we have nothing to be scared of. The, the shadow of death sounds like a very scary place, doesn't it? Where the threat of death is always looming over our heads. But Christ has finally defeated death on the cross. 
and there's nothing to be scared of anymore. You know, there's this interesting thing that the Israelites do uh, after they get out of Egypt. They're out, out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses is trying to lead them. They have basically super wonder bread that falls from the sky, and birds just kind of come lay down and say, eat me. Um, it's weird. Uh, but they get really kind of frustrated with that, and they say, let's just go back to Egypt. We understood what was happening there. We weren't, we weren't traipsing through the desert. Like, let's just go back. It, it was better there. And they forget. They forget. They forget that Israel was a land of death. And I think too often in our lives, too often in our lives, we forget as well. We forget the victory that Christ has won over death and sin. We forget the victory that Christ has won over the principalities and powers. We forget of the victory that Christ has won on all of our behalves. And we, and we just kind of... Uh, we think, oh, okay, we just, we just go back, right, to whatever that thing was, to whatever that thing is that brings me comfort. Let's just go back. And the truth of the matter is, is that the, the Christian life is one in which we hold on to the hope and resurrection of Christ as a sure promise, as a seal, as a down payment of the truth this unbelievable cosmic truth that Christ has defeated death and that we don't have anything to be scared of anymore. That he has delivered us from slavery to sin. That he's delivered us from the authority of the principalities and powers that are held over our heads. That he has finally and completely delivered us. And going back isn't a great option. It's not a great option. And as we approach Easter... Uh, in the next couple of weeks. This is why Easter is such a beautiful thing. This is why Easter is such a beautiful thing. It's this picture of the victory that Christ has ultimately won. And in our and in our world, when we when we experience the difficulty that we experience, and we actually do experience death, right? We have loved ones who pass away. We are tempted to think, where's where's the victory? Where's the deliverance? Where's the hope? But we hold on to this sure promise that death has been defeated on the cross. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we know, we know that we've been delivered. This is the hope, and this is what Jesus has come to do for us. Would you stand with me this morning as we conclude? My hope for you today, my hope for you today is that as, uh, as we open the scriptures over the next, uh, my hope for you today was that as we open the scriptures, that you would see, that you would see what Christ uh, has delivered you from by looking closely at what God delivered Israel from. And if you're in this place this morning and you're feeling like, oh gosh, it doesn't feel like I've been delivered from any of that, right? It feels difficult. It feels hard. There's temptation. I feel the way in which my heart is, uh, still feels like it's enslaved to sin. I still feel like I go in a direction that I don't want to go. I still feel like there's a, some authority over my head, right? That's not good. I just want to pray for you today. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Father, we love you. We love you. And we ask that you would help us to cling to the hope, the saving hope that we find in Jesus Christ. 
that we have been delivered from the, the authority of the principalities and powers. We have been delivered from the power of idolatry, that we have been delivered from our slavery to sin, and that we have been delivered ultimately and finally from the sting of death in Christ's work for us on the cross. And I pray for those in this place, God, who are feeling like, oh gosh, I, I don't feel that. I don't feel that, God. Would you uh, be near them in this, in this time today? Would you help them to yield their brokenness and their hurt to you? Would you help them to lay down maybe whatever attachment they might have that is keeping them bound or in slavery this morning? And would you free their hearts? Would you free their hearts? And would they cling to the resurrection of Christ as a means of knowing and believing in hope that you have won the victory on their behalf? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for calling us together today. And we pray that as we go this week, that we would walk in the victory made available to us in Christ Jesus, that we would no longer walk encumbered by uh, sin or by death, that we would no longer walk encumbered uh, by those temptations that so easily entangle our hearts, God, but that we would walk free to serve and worship you and to love others. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thanks for being here with us. Um, yeah, thanks for being here with us today. It was good. It was a good day. I hope you have a donut. If there are any donuts left, take them, because um, because I'm it's it's a fit and trim Easter Sunday for me, guys. All right, go today in the grace and in the peace of Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks.